Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the London School of Economics. My name is Silvana Tanreiro. I'm a professor of economics here at the LSE, and I'm truly delighted to be here today to introduce Alexander Betts and Paul Collier, who will be presenting their new book. Um, Alexander Betts is the Leopold Mueller Professor of Force Migration and International Affairs at the University of Oxford, where he's also director of the Refugee Studies Center. He has written extensively for The Guardian, The New York Times, and Foreign Affairs, and appears regularly on news channels including CNN, Al Jazeera, and the BBC. He has also given two TED Talks that have become very, very popular with over a million views. Paul Collier is the Professor of Economics and Public Policy at the Blavatnik School of Government, also in Oxford. Paul is a, an amazingly prolific academic. He's uh, written many books and articles. His book, um, The Bottom Billion, has won several prizes. His other recent books include The Plundered Planet and Exodus. Previously, Paul has served as director of the research department at the World Bank. Now, Paul and Alexander will present their book titled Refuge, Transforming a Broken Refugee System. Needless, needless to say, this is an urgent question today. They will tell us about the causes and consequences of the refugee, refugee crisis and will explain why the institutions and policies we have in place are not dealing with the problem adequately. So after setting the stage, they will share their news ideas on how to fix the refugee system to tackle the crisis. Now I leave the door to them, and after their presentation, there will be an opportunity to ask questions and also a book signing event. Uh, before I leave, three more practical things. Please put your mobiles on silent. The talk will be recorded, and we hope a podcast of the event will be available online, subject to technical difficulties. And finally, for those on Twitter, the hashtag for the event is hash LSE Refuge. Um, so please join me now in welcoming Alexander and Paul with a warm applause. just figuring out where the clicker is for the slides. Um. I'll start while we find it. Um, first of all, thank you, Silvana, for chairing, and thank you, all of you, for coming. Um, I almost don't know where to look with this sort of wonderful two-story old theatre. This is a book that we've written very much to try to shape and influence public policy. It's one that's written for the general public rather than being an esoteric academic volume. It contains research, but we're not primarily aiming at academics. We're aiming to influence the debate and change public policy perspectives. The book, reflecting that, divides into two broad parts, one on the problem and the other on the solution. And what I'm <laughs> going to begin by doing is setting up how we understand the nature of the refugee challenge. What's the problem we face? Because until you can correctly diagnose the challenge, and we think public policymakers and politicians have failed to do that, you can't find solutions. And then Paul will reflect on some of the elements of the solutions we propose in the book. 
First of all, how is it that Paul, an eminent development economist, and me, the director of the Refugee Studies Centre at Oxford, came to work together on this project? Well, rewind two years to April 2015. And Paul received a call from a small think tank in Jordan called the Wanner Institute. And at the time, they were looking desperately for new ideas, innovative ways to address the Syrian refugee challenge on their doorstep. Jordan had, according to official statistics, 600,000 Syrians in a relatively small country. The unofficial claims of the government were that it had over a million Syrians. And they were struggling. They were resorting to encampment policies. They had more and more people bypassing that and going to cities. And they wanted approaches that could work for development. So Paul and I traveled out to the region, and we did a fairly standard visit to Amman and the Zatari refugee camp, home to 83,000 Syrian refugees. And while we were there, thinking about ideas, our guide, a Jordanian, had some downtime and said, well, we've seen quite a lot of this refugee challenge. Can I show you something different as part of the downtime? And he took us to something that he was quite proud of, an economic zone called the King Hussein bin Talal Development Area. And that area, that development area, was just 15 minutes from the Zatari refugee camp. 15-minute drive. And the government had spent about £100 million connecting it to the electricity grid and the road network, but it lacked a couple of things. It lacked workers, and it lacked foreign direct investment. So we thought, hang on. This area is 15 minutes away from a space where you've got 83,000 refugees languishing, idle, unable to work, unable to do much with their time, and desperate for jobs. So we put two and two together and brainstormed with the government, brainstormed with NGOs and international institutions whether perhaps we could empower Syrians to work in those areas alongside Jordanian nationals. And that's what led us to begin working together. And Paul will say more about that idea. But of course, April 2015 was a time when something else began to happen. It was the start of the European refugee crisis, as it became known. In that month, 700 people lost their lives, drowning, trying to cross from Libya to Lampedusa. And that began an unparalleled period of consistent failure by European governments and policymakers to address a growing influx of refugees and migrants throughout 2015. It's worth recognizing that the numbers of refugees in 2015 were not significantly higher than in the past, 20 million refugees around the world. But two things were different about the refugee crisis. The first was the reasons why people were coming, increased fragility around the world. Of those 20 million refugees, around half were from just three countries, all fragile states, Somalia, Afghanistan, Syria. And fragility hadn't been conceived of as the general reason why we think of refugees fleeing. Traditionally, they'd been thought of as fleeing persecution by governments rather than fragility. But the second thing that was new was mobility. Technology and the presence of smuggling networks empowered refugees to travel across continents. So this was the first time Europe had faced a major influx at that level from outside the European region. 
And as European politicians lurched from one failure to another, we decided we needed to write the book as a way of offering concrete, pragmatic solutions. And the book is, in a way, if it has a central message, the message is that this is not an insurmountable problem, that it is fixable, but we need to understand it and find solutions rooted in development. So to lay out the problem, I want to outline three basic ideas. I want to explain why we failed so badly in Europe. Secondly, I want to step back and ask, what's the purpose of refuge? If we were to conceive of a system that worked, what are the functions and tasks it would need to fulfill? Because until we answer that question, we can't find institutions that will work. And then thirdly, I want to say something about what the real challenge is and argue it's more straightforward than we think it is. So how can we think about the European failure? Well, the European Union's challenge of dealing with refugees and providing asylum goes back to the very nature of the European Union. The European Union, um, in trying to create a common market or a customs union, had to engage with the question of asylum and migration. If you're going to create free movement of goods, services, and labor within a regional economic community, you have to have a common external border. And as soon as you have a common external border, you have to have a common asylum system. So having created Schengen in the 80s and 90s, through the Treaty of Amsterdam in 1999, the European Union began to create this framework. And it did so with a series of directives harmonizing responses across the EU member states in areas like reception, qualifications, procedures, who is a refugee and what are they entitled to. But in addition to that, it created the cornerstone of the European asylum system, known as the Dublin Regulation. And the Dublin system, in a nutshell, allocates primary responsibility for assessing an asylum claim to the first country of arrival, invariably the frontline states, Italy, Greece, and it was a system that was designed for small numbers, but faced with large numbers that overwhelmed Greece and Italy, it led to a collapse in that system, a collective action failure as refugees were passed around like hot potatoes. And that lays the backdrop for three periods, three phases that we outline in the book of the failed European response to the million asylum seekers who arrived in 2015. The first phase can be thought of as a phase of heartlessness. Between 2011, when the Syrian crisis began, and 2015, Europe sat on its hands while refugees <coughs> fled collapsing Syria into the three neighboring haven countries, Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan. We did nothing. We provided limited humanitarian assistance. We assumed it was a problem that would remain in that region and not come to Europe. But then we shifted to a second phase, very briefly in 2015, the headless phase, if you like. Angela Merkel, in August 2015, pronounced via scharf and das, suggesting that we will cope, we will open our borders and allow people to arrive. And it was a very noble and morally inspired vision. But within less than six months, she'd U-turned on that vision, conspiring with the European Union and with Turkey to close the Balkans route, close the Aegean Sea route, and return people to Turkey. And that ushered in a third phase 
again, of heartlessness, of returning people and not providing support, and muddled policies of unilateralism with a collapse of human rights standards across Europe. And so what we suggest is we need both head and heart. We need to be able to think about rational responses and not see refuge as something that should inspire fear, but something that can connote a sense of compassion, solidarity based on our common humanity. The problem is that the current international institutional framework is poorly adapted to meet those aims. That institutional framework fails at a European level, but it also struggles at a global level. The international refugee system is based on two institutions created by these gentlemen in the 1950s. The UN Convention, the 1951 Convention on the Status of Refugees, and the UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, and both are stuck in a time warp. The UN Refugee Convention, for instance, defines a refugee as someone fleeing a well-founded fear of persecution. People fleeing a tyrannical government out to get them. But today, most people are fleeing fragile states. And so courts have to shoehorn contemporary circumstances into old language. They have to torture the definition of persecution in order to fit in the contemporary context of generalized violence and fragility that drives people across borders. And the consequences of that are dire. It leads to inconsistency and idiosyncratic responses. If you're an Eritrean refugee, for instance, you have a 24% chance of being recognized as a refugee in France and a 100% chance of being recognized if you go to Sweden. For much of the 1990s, Germany refused to recognize Somalis as refugees because they weren't fleeing a government. Well, Somalia didn't have a government, but it didn't mean those people weren't desperate and vulnerable. So that shoehorning into old language is one of the reasons why we have failure. With UNHCR, an organization created for the Cold War, it has partly adapted over time. But its default response has been to manage care and maintenance in refugee camps, a failed model that undermines the dignity of refugees. And it's also particularly good at providing legal advice to governments around the 1951 convention. But today, governments are ignoring that legal advice. Governments are systematically not complying with that convention. And moreover, many of the host countries around the world are not even full signatories to the 1951 convention. So it's not necessarily that the convention is irrelevant. It influences some states some of the time. But advocating for it as one of the sole strategic ways of influencing refuge is redundant and antiquated. So it needs us to rethink the purpose of those institutions for the 21st century beyond the time warp. Because what do those institutions do in practice? What do they mean for refugees? Well, if we take the reality faced by refugees, we first need to recognize the geographical concentration of the challenge. Most refugees are not in Western Europe. 90% of refugees are in developing regions of the world. 60% of refugees are in just 10 host countries. Countries like Lebanon, Turkey, Jordan, Kenya, Uganda, Ethiopia, Chad. Those are the countries where we need to focus to find solutions. This image illustrates the distribution of Syrian refugees. And if you can't see the numbers clearly, you can buy the book and look more closely. <laughs> but what it shows in part 
is that 0.2% of Syrian refugees are in the UK, while around 50% are in Turkey. It highlights that the overwhelming majority of Syrians are in those three haven countries where they've been since the start. And the tragedy is, if you're a Syrian, you face three basic options faced with this time-warped institutional framework. The first is encampment. You can go to a refugee camp. This is the Azraq camp in Jordan. It's a camp that was designed, purpose-built just a few years ago, based on years of learning by the UN Refugee Agency on what would work. But when you get there, it's a high modernist hell. Lines of porter cabin shelters in a hot, distant, remote, arid area. Refugees don't have the right to work. They don't have freedom of movement in most refugee camps around the world. And the average length of stay in camps is around two decades. So understandably, most refugees bypass that system entirely and choose option two, to go to urban areas, cities and towns like Beirut and Amman. That's where most of the world's refugees are, in cities. But you face a double bind in cities. Not only do you invariably not have the right to work as a refugee in these haven countries, but you also give up assistance from the agencies. For example, in Turkey, which hosts more refugees than any other country in the world, less than 10% of Syrians receive any assistance from UNHCR and its implementing partners because they're mainly in cities. And that's why increasing but small numbers have resorted to option three, perilous journeys with smuggling networks. Now, this has to be a false choice. It is an impossible choice for refugees. So how can we rethink those options and provide an alternative? For us, the challenge is within those 10 haven countries that host 60% of the world's refugees and have repeatedly hosted refugees over decades. If we can get our frameworks right in those countries, we can empower those countries and refugees and create solutions that are sustainable at scale. So where can we look for good practice? Well, Uganda is a fascinating case, which we've researched extensively in Oxford. And Uganda has embarked on a different path compared to the other safe haven countries. It gives refugees the right to work. It gives them significant freedom of movement, even though today it hosts around a million refugees, around the same number of asylum seekers that reached 28 European member states in 2015. And what we've been able to see is not only does that model empower refugees, it benefits the host community. In Kampala, the capital city of Uganda, 21% of refugees run a business that employs at least one other person. And 40% of their employees are nationals of the host country. Refugees are creating jobs. And we see enormous examples of people flourishing in work, a variety of livelihoods activities, helping themselves and their communities. Less than 1% of the refugees we interviewed had no form of independent income-generating activity. So they're not reliant on World Food Programme handouts. You can't live on WFP handouts. They're doing it for themselves and helping themselves. And there are examples from the past that have worked along these very lines. As early as the interwar years in the 1920s, Greece, faced with refugees fleeing the collapsed Ottoman Empire, provided plots of land, provided jobs that helped people to 
contribute to the Greek economy and flourish for themselves. In the 1960s and 70s, before the turn to refugee camps, self-settled refugees in Africa were given plots of land and the chance to be self-reliant. In the 1990s, after the end of the Cold War in Central America, hundreds of thousands of Guatemalan refugees were locally integrated in Mexico and supported with European community money in ways that not only helped those refugees, but built the development of the Yucatan Peninsula. Not all countries are like Uganda. Not all countries are like Central America. But what we need to look at on a context-specific basis is development opportunities, and that's where I'll hand over to Paul. Thanks, Alex. The mouse is the clicker for reference. Ah, can I go back, I wonder? Can I go back to that shocking image? No, I can't. Oh. Never touch the electrics. Sorry about that. I wanted to go back to that image because it's so searing. that It's the image of what UNHCR regards as perfection. The modern... UNHCR camp, no money spared, incorporating all the up-to-date learning from 60 years of doing it, and what he produced was that, except we can't find it. No. <laughs> so can you, can you set it up? Because I can't do the slide slide file. But, uh, Sorry, so I don't have six. a control. Yeah, slide six, apparently. Sorry about this. Sorry. Oh, here it is. Yeah. Uh, Yes, if you want to go... Were you trying to go on full screen? You see why I never use these things? (laughs) Yeah. That's why it's... Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. That's perfection. All right. Now... You will have detected a passion in Alex's voice. And for Alex, that was the passion born of frustration. He has lived, worked, breathed refugees as director of Refugee Studies Centre in Oxford, the biggest research centre on refugees in the world. And so his passion came from deep knowledge and frustration that this was a crazy system. If you detect passion in my voice, in what I'm going to say, it's not the passion that came from deep experience. It's the passion that came from deep shock. Because I saw that sort of stuff when they took us to Zattery. And I thought, and Zattery was supposed to be great. And it was frightful, right? It didn't meet the very basic condition of dignity, which is a degree of autonomy. No? Refugees are not choosing to move. They're not people who wake up in the morning and say, let's go to California. They're not migrants. They're people who have chosen to stay in their own country, and their own place of, li- of living has become unlivable because of disorder or because of famine, and fear drives them out. 65 million displaced. Right? That's the 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 sum of the problem, and then about a third of those stagger across the nearest border and become refugees. And the 
bulk of them are in these 10 regional haven countries, the only thing they've got in common is that they're proximate to disorder. Disturbed regions is very often the same haven countries with different neighboring countries that have fallen into disorder. So the very foundation, the ethical foundation of a sensible refugee policy is to try and restore autonomy to those refugees. Restore the shreds of autonomy. Our duty of rescue towards refugees is to restore the shreds of normality to life, to a disrupted life. And we're not doing it. Instead, we just park people here and they're put on hold for 20 years. This is not the model of how to do it. It's the testimony to 60 years of a false model. Now, 60 years ago, to be fair, the problem was different. It was temporary movement. And there weren't good long-term solutions. What's changed over the last 60 years is that there are now ready alternatives to that. And, um, and that's basically um, the foundations of autonomy are you need to be able to earn a living. You need a job. And so there are two ways of getting refugees jobs. You can either take refugees to jobs or jobs to refugees. And a priori, both of those are worth exploring. And to be fair, in Europe, you've got two of Europe's many leaders who did other than just sit on their hands. And sitting on their hands was also um, sitting on their hearts. So the bulk of European leaders were heartless, basically. For years, ever since 2011, when the Syrian refugee crisis erupted, they did effectively nothing. The refugees went to the poor neighboring countries, Jordan, Lebanon, Turkey, and Europe said, nothing to do with us. Total failure of the duty of rescue. Total failure of compassion. That's why we were brought to Jordan, because Governor Jordan was saying, help, we can't manage it. Right? When 2011, the, uh, there's plenty of economists in, in this audience at LSE, um, the, the government's debt-to-GDP ratio was entirely manageable. Right? By 2015, it had exploded into the unmanageable because of the burden. So they were left to bear a burden that they couldn't bear. So two of Europe's leaders did something other than, uh, than heartlessness. They innovated, and they took different innovations. Right? Germany took one innovation, and Britain took another. Right? Neither were perfect. Right? Um, German model was clearly very well motivated. Um, no question about that. Um, There are are some buts. I mean, one but that Alex has already said, it it wasn't sustainable. It only lasted five months, so whatever else you say about it, uh, it wasn't a sustainable model. It wasn't a sustainable way of bringing refugees to jobs. Um, uh, But there are more unsatisfactory features than that. Probably 
If jobs are what you want, the most striking thing is that it hasn't generated them. Um, there are a lot of refugees in Syrian refugees in Germany. Uh, only 14% of them uh, are in work. And that's because if you wanted to get jobs for refugees, Germany would be about the last place on earth you'd try. Because Germany, of every country in the world, Germany has perfected a very sophisticated advanced labor market in which the minimum job has very high productivity. That's how they can get away with a very high minimum wage. And how do they get that very high productivity? Very lengthy periods of training tied to very clear milestones of certification. And so it's the ultimate model of the high wage, high productivity, long periods of training, certified credentials society. It's the last place on earth where you can get, generate a lot of quick jobs for people without qualifications. Right? So that's one problem with it. It's just not done what it's supposed to say on the tin. Um, but the other problem um, is that it was inadvertently highly selective. Germans didn't go out of their way to be selective. They didn't say we're going to pick the best. Um, but the system by which people arrived guaranteed that this would be highly selective. Remember, um, it didn't come with any means of getting to Europe. And so the only way of getting to Europe was buy a place on a people smuggler boat. Right? The Latin American people smuggling gangs moved in quickly. They saw a business opportunity. And so this was big criminal business from the start with big ticket prices. The average annual income of a Syrian, even before the conflict set in, was $2,000. $2,000 average earnings in a year. Syria was a very poor country. The ticket price for a place on those boats started at $6,000. So who's going to go? Right? Not the poorest, not the most needy. Basically, people who've got several thousand dollars cash. Right? So you know who's coming. But actually... On the survey evidence, survey evidence is a bit difficult to piece together, but what we can establish is that the people who became refugees are a complete random sample of the Syrian population. Fear strikes anywhere. So they're just a, a, a random draw from the Syrian population, in effect, in terms of characteristics. But the refugees in Europe, very much not a random draw. Less than 5% of Syrians in Europe but something between a third and a half of all the Syrians with a university education. Pretty striking figure. Um, now, that wouldn't matter except that at some stage, Syria will get back to peace. Conflicts don't go on forever. They seem to go on until they end. And then the big task sets in, the post-conflict re recovery. And the language of post-conflict reconstruction gives you images of what you've got to do is pour concrete, rebuild bridges and that sort of thing. That's not what post-conflict reconstruction is actually about. It's not about conflict, about concrete. 
It's about people in organizations. You've got to rebuild the organizations of the society. And for that, you need people like you, what you're going to be. Um, and they're in Germany. Um, so uh, let's have a look at the other model, not bring the refugees to the jobs, but bring the jobs to the refugees. After all, that's where the refugees are. They're in these regional haven countries. They're there because it's close, and if you talk to refugees, their main aspiration is that at some stage you'll go back home. Uh -huh. um, so um, what's, the, what's the model of, um, of jobs to refugees? And it's that, uh, it's that. I don't do this. I don't do this. Let's see if I can manage it. Can we get to Tell me when I've got to it. Yes. We're there. Right? This is the King Hussein industrial zone that Alex and I were, were driven off to by a bored Jordanian official who wanted to show what the country could do. Right? And um, one feature of it, you can't see from that, is it is nearly empty. Right? They built this thing. It was huge. Um, the only trouble was there were no firms in it. One reason there were no firms was firms didn't want to go to it, um, but one reason they didn't want to go to it was that Jordanian workers didn't want to go to it because it was built in a remote part of the country. Uh, it had been meant to open up that part of the country. So, um, so the, 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 the intellectual challenge, not a very big one, is to think, so what would it take to get jobs there and what would it take to get the Jordanian government to agree that refugees could actually do those jobs. Right? So that was the, that was the challenge we'd, we had to think through. So the first was the political. If you can't get over the political, forget all the rest. Right? It's not mainly a technical economics problem. It's mainly a political problem. Um, what's in it for the government of Jordan? The government of Jordan hadn't just come up with the rule refugees can't work as a mistake... They'd come, it as a, they'd come to that rule as a political necessity because Jordan was very short of jobs. There was a lot of unemployed Jordanian citizens and the, the news that poor Syrians could, could undercut them and work, that was a complete political no-no. So there had to be something that changed the mind of the Jordanian government. And it did change its mind big time. But what persuaded it was the news that refugees were not a threat. They were an opportunity. Why were they an opportunity? Because what Jordan most wanted was to break out of the middle income trap. Stuck at around $10,000 per capita, it wanted to go up. And we know that's hard. And Jordan knew that the only way it would do that would be if the, the big high product high-productivity international firms came and set, set up business in Jordan and started to grow it. But the big international firms weren't looking at Jordan. And so we said, look, you're on the map at the moment. Um, we turned the, the opening of the doors to Germany to advantage. We said, if, you're not, if you don't move soon, those refugees will all go to Europe and then you won't have any leverage. You know, move quickly. And they did. They did. 
Um, uh, so they said, yeah, if, if you can get firms to come in to these zones and create jobs, for every seven jobs for a refugee, as long as there are three jobs for Jordanian citizens, that's doable. And it's doable at a big scale. Remember, all this stuff has got to work not for, a f not for 300, it's got to work for the millions. Right? Uh, so, um, the Jordanian government started to talk about up to 200,000 work permits for Syrian refugees. If we get 200,000 work permits, every family, every Syrian family in Jordan would have somebody in a proper job, you know? So, the next, so that was the political box ticked, basically. Then it's the economics box of how do you get firms to go to places like this? It was properly equipped. Um, so, that, then a bit of economics kicks in. If a firm produces in this King Hussein industrial zone, where's it going to sell its goods? Right? Not in Jordan. Right? Tiny market. Right? Where's it going to sell them? In Europe. Whoops. Um, Europe's got trade barriers against Jordan. Right? So we went to Brussels, talked with the European Commission, and said, you know, do you realize you've got trade barriers against Jordan? Do you realize there's a million refugees? That's kind of, you know, problem. Um, and so after a mere eight months, which is the blink, and the blink of an eye in terms of the European Commission actually doing anything, um, uh, they, lifted the, they removed the trade barriers. Right? So there's now 10 years guaranteed free access, free market access. Right? So that one ticked. Then... You need some financial incentives, bear some of the risks, get things started for firms to come in. Right? So you need an international economic development agency. Well, I knew one because I used to work for one, right? So off I went to the World Bank. And as luck would have it, one of my old uh, division chiefs who used to work for me was now the chief economist for the Middle East. So I went in and said, you know, why aren't you in Jordan? He said, you've forgotten, you've forgotten. $10,000 per capita, upper-middle-income country. We're out of upper-middle-income countries, thanks to your work, Paul, right? <laughs> um, so I said, but this can't make sense. There's a million desperately poor people. Um, surely, um, why don't you ask the board of the World Bank to change the, the mandate, as it were? And so... To, to the enormous credit of the, of the Middle East region of the bank, that's exactly what they did. They prepared a project for $300 million, a refugee project, the first the World Bank had ever done, and it was to create jobs in these industrial zones, and they took it to the board. And every member of the board wanted to speak, and they all wanted to say, we fully support this idea. Right? So... You know, they could have done it probably many years before. They just needed the thing to become sufficiently salient that you get policy change. Um, so we got that finance. We also, that finance, at the same time, they put through another soft loan from the World Bank to the, to the government of Lebanon to pay for schooling for refugees. 
And so that started the process of actually getting some money to governments. Um, same same time, last year, um, there was a, a conference convened jointly by the King of Jordan, David Cameron, and the President of the World Bank held in London, um, which was a mixture of a pledging conference which raised a lot of money for the Haven governments and a jobs conference. Right? Um, pledging is great. They pledged a lot of money. Um, all they've now got to do is honor their pledges, right? Um, to its credit, actually, Britain has honored its pledge. Britain is providing half of all the money that's going uh, to, the, to the refugees, right? Um, so um, Britain pledged and paid. Um, at the moment, we're in the embarrassing situation that some other countries pledged and haven't paid, right? Um, you get, it gets worse. I mean, Sweden, very noble country with refugees, as we all know, and as they keep telling us, um, uh, Sweden um, paid for the refugees in Sweden by halving its aid budget. Right? So guess, try and work out who actually paid for the refugees in Sweden. It wasn't Swedes. Right? It was some of the poorest people on earth. Right? Um, Firms. We need firms to go to these places. And so we need firms to take the refugee issue out of the little silo box corporate social responsibility, send some blankets to a camp, into their core business of saying, let's go look, what can we produce here? Right. That's the battle in the boardroom. And that can only be run, be won, by the, the, the directors of company boards actually taking this subject seriously. And I'll come back to that. I've got two more points. Um, incubation. Not only can this be good for Jordan and good for the refugees, but it can also incubate the post-conflict Syrian economy. Because as the firms go to uh, things like the industrial zone in Jordan, they set up production, 70% of their workers Syrian. When the conflict ends and those workers want to go home, the main setup costs for a firm in a new country are, the trained, are getting a trained labor force. And if you've got a ready trained labor force, not just trained general skills, but actually trained in working for your firm, it's a lot easier to follow the workers. Now, fortunately, capitalism isn't a zero-sum game. So it doesn't mean you up and leave Jordan. If you've got a profitable enterprise running in Jordan, you can keep it running in Jordan. You just set up another enterprise in Syria where you've got a trained workforce and try and make it profitable there. So this is a, a strategy which not only provides dignity for refugees whilst they're refugees, but speeds the recovery of the post-conflict economy, which is probably the most difficult task of all. Um, finally, um, what's, ha what we, what's happened in Jordan 
has already become a brand. It's now called the Jordan model. And it's already being imitated. I mean, this is a model that's really pretty new. You know, it's sort of 12 months old. Um, it's already been picked up by Ethiopia. Ethiopia's already got a zone with exactly this model. Ethiopia's got an awful lot of refugees, and so it's indeed offering this deal. And there are already firms doing it. Chancellor Merkel, to her great credit, actually went to Ethiopia to see these industrial zones in January. Right? Representatives of the Ethiopian government, the advisor of the Prime Minister, was in London two weeks ago and summoned me to say, come and see our zone because we, and try and persuade the Germans to come big time because we really, really want German and other European firms to come to our zones, employ both refugees and Ethiopians. Why do we want European firms? Because we've already got Chinese firms coming. That's good, but what we really want is balance. We want the European firms. So far in Jordan, there's 38,000 new jobs as a result of this model. Um, you can either sneer at that and say, it's 38,000 as a, a drop in the ocean, or say, um, that's not bad for a start, given that you're starting cold, um, what we suggest in the book is you've got to try and imagine not what's actually happened, but suppose this had been the model. Instead of that damn awful camp that I showed, suppose this had been the model for years, so that we actually had international agencies doing this as a matter of course. So in companies... When you got a refugee situation, it became an automatic matter of discussion on the board. Should we go there? Can we do an operation there? Then I think you'd have seen a much faster uptake. Um, we do need agencies that can do this. And at the moment, we really haven't got them. The World Bank has just, right, it's six months, less than six months old, that the World Bank is actually thinking about this. UNHCR over 60 years old, but as they've privately said to us in response to our suggestions, they've said rather indignantly, we're not a jobs agency. Well, that is true, unfortunately. But it's also unfortunately the case that what refugees most want is just that, a jobs agency. Right? So either UNHCR re-equips itself to be able to do the job of jobs, or it relinquishes the monopoly mandate, stops putting up the big sign, keep off, to other agencies, and welcomes them in. Where we've got to is we're at the end of our road of bringing a message to the public. Right? We need this message to go into societies, we need it to go into boardrooms, it, we need it to go into the international agencies, we need it to become common currency. We need ambassadors. That's why we have written a book which yesterday one of our interviewers on television had actually read it. She said, by God, it's a page turner. Right? We've written a readable book 
please read it and become ambassadors. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Paul and Alex, for a very compelling and inspiring talk. Um, we will now open the floor to questions. We will take three questions at a time. Please say your name and your affiliation and keep the question uh, brief. We have one, two, and the lady up there. Hi, uh, hello, I'm Ramin. I teach economics at King's College. I wanted to ask about uh, the possible linkages between these, uh, my, my question is addressed to Paul. I would like to ask about the possible linkages between these industrial zones and the rest of the economies because the industrial zones tend to become enclaves and that can potentially create political problems of their own. And just a minor question, what these uh, firms are specialized in can they compete when these preferential treatments go away in, I don't know, 10 years time? Hi, Louis Reed, um, master's student at the Institute of Education. Um, question for Paul. In your book, uh, Exodus, you seem to argue that migration has the inbuilt inclination to speed up. How do you uh, convince more people to uh, go home than to follow those people that have migrated? Thank you very much. Um, my question is, um, why can't we import the Jordanian model to one of the to, to other countries that are not one of those ten countries, so European countries. What's stopping us from doing something like that? And to what extent does the Jordanian model um, take into account individuals, um, so their particular skill sets, preferences in terms of the jobs that they actually do in these industrial zones? Okay, I'll have a go with the first two. And actually, um, the um, so. Zones becoming enclaves rather than spilling over. Um, in the case of, um, of refugees, there's actually quite a good chance for it. Imagine if we've got this, this big camp, Zatari, right next to a, a zone. Um, for every job in that zone held by somebody in the camps, there's spending power to be spent in the camps. What was, the camps need to be re-envisaged as temporary cities. Um, actually, economic activity in the camps has been severely discouraged, and it needs to be vigorously encouraged. One of the little things I found, when I was in Zatari, I, I roamed around and I found a bunch of guys who'd very ingeniously fixed up a little car engine to generate electricity. There was no electricity in the camp, right? Um, and they were generating electricity and distributing it in a local network. Pretty smart. Um, so as an economist, I said the obvious question, um, how much do you charge per kilowatt hour? Right? <laughs> and they looked at me, and then they looked, not at Alex, he wasn't there, they looked at my UNHCR minder. And they said, oh, no, 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 we don't sell it. We give it away for free. And that told me everything I needed to know about economic activity in that camp, right? Um, um, the activity that these guys were doing, which was fundamental. If there's no power, you can't do a damn thing in an economy. So they were generating power 
and it was actually being frowned on, you know. Um, so you can get quite big spillovers here, I think, a bigger multiplier on the demand side than, than for most other areas. Um, are they going to be sustainable in 10 years? Um, partly the answer is who knows, I and mean, we're not very good at forecasting 10 years, but, um, but let's suppose we were. What we would say is that um, it's much harder to start things than to sustain them because the nature of agglomeration economies is as a threshold. If you can get big enough to get going, then it's rather easy to sustain it. Um, let, Jordan, it's too early to say, but let's look at Turkey, where this sort of thing's been going on for a long time, not refugee-focused, just jobs for... There's a nowhere town in central Turkey. It's not even on the coast. And it now... Ten years ago, nothing. Now it is the world leader in synthetic carpet production. Uh, it has 55% of the world market, right? Um, so it built a very successful agglomeration. That's the sort of thing that you can possibly ignite. Right? Um, have, second question, how to convince people to go home? I have no idea, right? But Roy, I've got one, one interesting feature here. Um, it's concerned with very much the, um, the discourse in, 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 in Germany at the moment um, uh, people are worried, um, can we speed up the process of integration? Everybody's focused on integration. You know, basically, sort of, will Syrians become Germans? And how do we make that happen as fast as possible? Should we disperse them around this, the country? Should we make sure they learn German and all this stuff? Um, you know, actually, if... Um, the model is these are very skilled people who we kind of, the best thing that could happen is that in two or three years they go back. Um, what you really want them is for them to keep, to maintain their links with Syria. Uh, not say Syria's dead, forget it. Um, so there's a tension here between the, the urge to integrate, it's a noble urge, um, and, the, and, the, and the, the, the value of return. Now, the, the, the book discusses this extensively, right? And there isn't a... Um, it depends how long you think the conflict is going to go on for, and we don't know at the start of the conflict. What we suggest is this should be a sensible sort of cut-off point, and it would be very helpful to know that in advance, for, for refugees to know. You know maybe five years. Say, okay, if you can't go back after five years, you're here for good, and we'll really be integrating you. Uh, if, you if, the, if, the thing, if the peace is restored within five years, go back, um, because that's where you need it. And it might be five years, it might be different, but, but having that knowledge from the start will be very helpful to refugees to organize their lives. None of us know how long these conflicts will go on for, but refugees have got as good information as anybody else, and they can just update their strategies according to that. Alex. Yeah. So, your questions. Could the Jordan model be applied elsewhere other than the ten haven countries? Well, I think we're not necessarily even saying that the Jordan model is necessarily the model for all of those ten countries. We're saying that the key is jobs, autonomy, and a development approach rather than just a humanitarian approach. 
But the way that will work will be different in different contexts. And Jordan is a hard case. So Uganda, towards the easier end of the spectrum. You don't even need economic zones in Uganda. You can just allow people temporarily to be socioeconomically integrated. In Jordan, it's much harder politically. It's much more constrained. Hence, that model, which countries like Ethiopia are prepared to embrace, where they weren't prepared to embrace the Uganda model. I think there are a couple of principles that we think should underlie a functional refugee system. One is the principle of comparative advantage, that it makes sense for countries to specialize in where they can add most value. So for European countries, we suggest predominantly they're in a better position to provide money and the haven countries in a better position to provide territory. But there's a second principle that we think is important, of solidarity, that all countries should do a bit of everything, that if you're the UK, you shouldn't just be providing money, you should also be providing territory. Now, the key is to do that in a strategic, thoughtful way. And so, as Paul just said, we think that there should be a cutoff where, beyond a certain point, it's unreasonable to expect people to stay in limbo, that there has to be a route out of limbo at some point. Now, it might be reasonable to expect people to wait in a neighboring country for three years or five years, but 10 years is certainly unreasonable. 20 years is absolutely beyond reproach. Um, The opposite of that. Um, but what that means is that we need a way of resettling some of those people but we've got to do it strategically, coherently and at the moment countries do their own resettlement policies more based on making themselves feel a bit better than actually going where the need is and so actually when you move people out and you resettle them beyond that cutoff, you should be empowering them to flourish as human beings and that involves, involves creating jobs and opportunity and with that training so It should be a model that empowers refugees and host communities, no matter what part of the world they're in. It just so happens that if you start where refugees are in those neighboring countries, you're going to get a lot further because you're dealing with a larger proportion of the population and those are the people who are most likely to be able to go home and rebuild post-conflict societies like Syria. In terms of taking into account individuals' preferences... I mean, there doesn't have to be anything constrained about this model other than the bounds of what's politically viable. Um, And so you can imagine scenarios in which the more you have good companies creating good jobs with specialisation and vibrant economic opportunity, the more options there would be for refugees to specialise, to have aspirations, to have access to vocational training and education and and build lives based on autonomy. Um, and that relies upon getting the model going. But equally, when we come back to that cut-off idea of resettlement, at the moment we resettle refugees entirely inappropriately. We send people with certain skills, not only to countries where there's a lack of fit, but regions of those countries. We might send doctors to rural areas, and we might send farmers to the middle of a capital city. And what we need is much more rational systems for doing that. So one of the ideas that we mentioned briefly in the book is preference matching, schemes that are used in other areas of economic life for institutional design, but that have rarely been thought about in this area. And a couple of our colleagues in Oxford, Will Jones and Alex Teitelboim, have thought a lot more about those ideas of preference matching for refugees. Well, we take more, three more questions now. One, two, three. Thank you. 
recognising the occupant. I just wondered how you account for the provision of, of public services. So looking at education and health. So yes, the job creation definitely for the for the breadwinner of the family. But what do you do in terms of you know additional support for lone parents or unaccompanied minors and, and separated children? And how are you providing a basic service such as education, which is absolutely critical if you're going to have this model five or ten years down the line? Um, good evening. Um, my name is Luisa. I'm doing my master's here in the IR department here at LSE. And I have a few questions on the, or very, just a few specification questions on the Jordanian model, which at the current stage is rather imperfect, but it's also because it's still developing. Um, as it looks now, um, the kind of jobs that are becoming attracted through the, this model are mainly in agriculture and um, yeah, manual jobs and not really in, in high-skilled labor and, and not really looking to um, specialize labor to attract in the future um, firms that are actually um, providing good jobs and, and good wages. So I'd like to understand how this has been incorporated into the model as it currently doesn't seem to be implemented. And, and the second question would be, um, what kind of firms are actually interested in moving to those zones? Are they uh, European firms, Jordanian firms, or even firms from Syria? As I know, there has been discussions as well to um, bring firms that cannot operate in Syria anymore into Jordan. Mm. But again, that doesn't seem to be the case. So what, what are th is the problem here? Mm. Hello, my name is Anika, and I'm also doing a master's degree here at LSE. And I'm very interested in cash transfer programs for refugees. Um, and as you know, that is also an approach which is um, discussed and also implemented. So I'm just wondering in how far this is also part of your argument, because the argument also goes, okay, this is providing more autonomy and maybe also entrepreneurial opportunities to, to refugees. And this, I mean, maybe as a first step might be a more realistic approach than having UNHCR becoming a job agency. So I'm just wondering. Shall I make a start? Mm, yeah, yeah. I, I, they're I, more, th yeah. I think we might all both have things to say on this. Um, Charlotte, public services. I mean, I think we're placing the emphasis on the capabilities of refugees, saying that for too long we've seen them as passive victims, when actually they have agency, they have skills, talents, they can contribute if they're allowed to contribute. But that doesn't mean that there aren't also vulnerabilities that we've got to support. And I think in any functioning economy, there's a safety net structure that provides a basis on which people who are vulnerable can be put back on their feet and then help themselves and their communities insofar as they're able. And that relies, in part, on public services. Now, for too long the way public services have provided to refugees has been a little bit dysfunctional. Education, for instance, has been siloed away from the refugee communities. I mean, one of the things that I think struck both of us in Zatari was that there were lots of Syrian teachers in the camp that were unemployed, while Syrian youth were required to attend education programs run by Jordanian teachers. Now, it's obvious that it makes sense to make use of the skills available to, uh, with, amongst the Syrian teachers. Um, but also, I think, there's a way of integrating those services. Anything that benefits refugees has to also 
benefit to host societies. If we were to break down prejudice and the fears that there's a zero-sum game where anything that benefits refugees disadvantages the host society, then the host communities have to also benefit from improved access to education, improved access to health, and improved um, public services. Um, Louisa, in terms of the, the nature of the Jordan model, I think we're not ready for, to sort of scream from the roofs that the Jordan model and the Jordan compact are perfect. It's a pilot. It's something that needs to be learned from. And there's been no serious impact evaluation. So one of the things we're trying to do at the moment is finalise getting the funding to do that impact evaluation, to learn what works, be honest about what doesn't work, before it's massively rolled out. I think in terms of the quality of jobs, we've got serious firms providing good jobs. IKEA is going to do supply chain. The supermarket firm Asda is going to go there. And those are good jobs. Now, we've got to be realistic about jobs that fit the productivity levels that were suitable for most people's level at pre-conflict Syria. The average GDP was around $2,000 a year. That means it's predominantly a low-productivity, low-wage society. Now, in that context, those jobs provided by multinational corporations are very good jobs. The biggest fear that was expressed to us by multinational corporations about getting involved was reputational risk. They don't want lots of NGOs saying, you're exploiting refugees, otherwise they'll go away and we won't get those jobs. So I think we need a realistic balance. But equally, the benchmark, I think, is what's an improvement on the status quo. And in the informal sector, many refugees face significant levels of exploitation in the black economy. If you talk to families in Amman, for instance, they are taking the lowest level jobs with no regulation and no scrutiny. And so moving some of those from the informal sector to the formal sector at least allows regulatory oversight, recourse, and serious global firms have reputations uh, to uphold. Um, Annika, in terms of cash transfer, I mean, I think it's one way of providing autonomy. And one of our colleagues, Stefan Durkan, uh, in Oxford, chief economist of DFID, has been involved in a very exciting pilot in Lebanon to actually try to trial it, collect data. I think in the last few years, there's been a cash revolution in humanitarian work to say, actually, rather than give people WFP rations that they sell at a fifth of the value it costs us to buy them to get cash to lead their own lives autonomously, why don't we do the economically rational thing and give them the cash that they want? But equally, I think it's that balance between having the support that's needed that also creates multiplier effects in those refugee economies versus ensuring that you don't have long-term dependency. But I think for us, anything that creates interim autonomy and allows people to flourish as human beings while working within some of the political constraints has to be a good thing. Yeah, I'll just add a little bit to that. I think um, one is that Syrian firms are now actually going to, uh, go, going to the zones. Um, I, I know because I, I just got an email a couple of days ago saying, here's a couple of examples that's actually happening. You know, so um, how big it is, I don't know, but it's certainly happening. Um, the... Um, the cash transfer thing, yes, but I think what the, minute, the, the platform off which enterprise can operate is electricity and connectivity. If you haven't got power and connectivity, any enterprise 
is going to be pathetic, you know? So any sort of productive enterprise at any scale needs power and connectivity, otherwise forget it. So there's a public infrastructure role to provide that, as well as the pump priming money, you know? Um, turns out often that the pump priming money is a bit less necessary because people have got webs of connectivity with their families, uh, even in poor countries. So if there's an opportunity, they can sometimes rustle up a bit of money. Um, they can't rustle up a bit of electricity and a bit of connectivity. Um, and then finally, on the, you know, what is a good job? Everything's relative, right? Um, uh, for me, working as a professor at Oxford, a good job would be to earn the professorial salary at LSE instead. Um, um, but, uh, so everything's relative. Um, but um, Sorry, that was facetious. <laughs> Though true. Um, um, but um, we, we take, refugees have fled from a $2,000 per capita economy to a $10,000 economy per capita per capita economy, right, from desperately poor Syria to middle-income Jordan. Um, we shouldn't fret that um, uh, this model is not going to produce the $40,000 uh, economy jobs. Um, you know, that's um, the best being the enemy of the good. Um, any decent firm that comes into a $10,000 economy and is subject to $10,000 economy regulatory environment for the labor market is going to produce jobs that are a whole lot better, not only than Syrians are doing now in the illegal market, but that they were doing in Syria. Um, last night we had the comment, my goodness, if your, if your model works, won't it be gamed by a lot of Syrians leaving Syria to, to come to these places. Our response was, that would be a good thing, because don't forget, um, more than half of the displaced are still stuck in Syria. If you can make conditions better in the haven countries, that's a good thing for the displaced, not a bad thing. Thank you. We'll take the last three questions, very brief one. One, two, and three. In the scenario you described, you had an industrial zone vacant waiting close to a refugee camp, um, and that helped. If it hadn't been there, how long would it have taken to create yep. for other countries wishing to copy this? Yep. And if it were to be created from scratch, would you recommend that it be built far away from other population centers mm. as an enclave, or the opposite, close to large cities? Yeah. Yeah, very good. Who's, who's next? With your hands. Yeah, go. Oh, okay. Uh, I can understand the focus on places where most refugees are, but presumably we're still going to be taking some people. And uh, I, I've just don't understand why Angela Merkel didn't say she'd give the first guess was 800,000 visas to people to be applied for in Turkey or wherever. I, I don't understand and I, I'm a little bit cynical about the inadvertent getting of uh, 
what is sometimes called the brightest and best, or as the editor of uh, City AM said, uh, this is how we get the risk takers, the enterprising people, the people we want, and uh, is, is the alternative arranging for or I think it has to be called processing in countries and uh, and also working out I'm, I'm so pleased somebody is trying to work out how to do it rather than all the moralizing that's been been going on and uh, anyway I might ask some more questions afterwards so and the last uh, question thank you very much. Uh, I'm Olivia I'm a student um, in the Master of IR here at LSE uh, my question is regarding uh, global solidarity and responsibility sharing because as, if, if you, as you said the challenge resides in those uh, 10 developing countries how do we ensure that all countries participate meaningfully and how do we ensure that specialization according to each one's like, uh, own special interest will uh, ultimately benefit the refugees themselves. Because if, for instance, uh, Western countries were to give more money, how do we ensure that this money will be actually used for refugees rather than whether as in Turkey right now for other means? And how do we ensure that in a long-term perspective, Western states will keep giving money while not receiving refugees within their territories and so maybe have the impression that the problem is not uh, in their interest? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so um, how long does it take to create these zones and where should they be built? But really sensible questions, right? Um, where should they be built? Not in the middle of nowhere. Right? Connectivity really matters. And so, um, uh, yes, you've got to take jobs to refugees, um, but there's a limit to that. And so you need enough freedom of movement of refugees within the country that, 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 that they can move to places within the country that are, that are feasible to create jobs. Um, otherwise, you know, it's a non-starter. So you've got to be able to do that. Jordan, it's, Jordan itself, it's quite straightforward. That was a big empty zone, but there's about 40 industrial zones around Jordan. So it's perfectly doable in Jordan. How, so let me turn, turn to the other question. How long to create from scratch? Um, the best current example of start from scratch is Ethiopia. Um, and they started uh, in 2011, this whole idea of trying to get foreign firms to come in, not initially for refugees, just come in to zone. And Ethiopia looked to have quite a lot against it. It doesn't have a coast. So one classic aspect of connectivity just isn't there. Um, it does have an airport, which is quite a good regional hub airport. And so they thought, right, we'll build it round the airport. Quite a lot of activities at the moment in light manufacturing. It's actually supply by air rather than by sea. Um, and so they brought... Uh, um, the Chinese in to have a look. Um, now, the, the time between um, the first come and have a look and the first thousand jobs was, I think, eight months. Um, it's now many thousands. Um, 
This is very easy to read up on because the first um, firm that moved, um, the, the, the fantastic woman who organized all this, uh, Helen Hay, um, recognized that the vital thing for success was that other firms followed so that you built an agglomeration as quickly as possible. And so this is awfully easy to find on Google because she sp spent her time very sensibly publicizing this around the world. Right? And so just Google Helen Hay and uh, the, the footwear story in Ethiopia and it'll pop up in every damn magazine in the world. Um, and bravo, because it's worked fast. Thousands of jobs just in five years, you know? Sylvana's just passed me a note saying, please be brief so you can sign books. So there's a very strong inbuilt incentive mechanism for me to be hasty. Um, let's start with responsibility sharing. How can you do it? One of the big gaps in the refugee regime is that it should have been created with two core elements. Sort of norms around asylum, the obligation states have towards refugees that reach their territory, and norms relating to responsibility sharing, the obligations states have to refugees in other parts of the world. But the refugee regime was built sort of half complete in that sense. There's no set of obligations about what commitments you have to make to refugees are on the, that are on the territory of another country. Now, one of the discussions that took place last year was about how we build norms around that. There was an idea for a refugee compact, which has now taken on a different form, which was to fill that gap on responsibility sharing. The problem is it's very hard to get governments to commit to what essentially is a blank check to abstract ideas about what might happen in the future, to say, we'll commit to crises we don't know about and we'll do X if you do Y. So it has to be that for any particular crisis as it arises, we need different forms of international cooperation, different packages, different agreements between governments. But to achieve that, you need a broker. You need an organisation that is politically savvy, can understand the interests of the states, and come up with packages of mutual gain. Now, in the past, UNHCR has sometimes done that very effectively. In the aftermath of the Vietnam War, faced with hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Vietnamese refugees fleeing across Southeast Asia... UNHCR led the world. It came up with a plan that allowed states to sign up to shared responsibility. And millions of Vietnamese were resettled from Southeast Asian countries to the United States, Canada, Australia, and it worked. We saw that for Central America based on development opportunities. But today, UNHCR is not playing that role of a political broker. Now, to be sympathetic to the position it's in, it's in a very difficult political environment. Immigration is politically toxic. Few countries want to take refugees. But we think the kind of models we're talking about can still be in the mutual self-interest of states. So the challenge is, and this is what international institutions are for, as all of you doing international relations will well know, it's about creating collective action. And manifestly, the institutions we have today are not creating the packages of mutual gain to create collective action. Now, we think those packages of mutual gain come partly from the principles we mentioned of comparative advantage and solidarity. And if governments in Europe want to manage better the kinds of crises that we saw in 2015 and 16, they have strong incentives to support development models in the haven countries. And if we can package that in a way that creates jobs for citizens and makes hosting more sustainable, 
we think that can be in the interest of those host countries. So responsibility sharing relies upon facilitating collective action based on identifying political and economic interests. Finally, you're absolutely right. If the real aim of the German government had been to allow safe passage of refugees to Europe, we wouldn't have been asking them to swim to Europe. We would have been providing visas to allow people to get on an aeroplane in Bodrum and fly to Frankfurt. Now, we didn't do that because implicitly European political leaders knew it was politically unsustainable to do that. Letting them fly to Europe would have been sensible at that time if that had been the policy goal, but there wasn't the political backing to do it. So we ended up in this hypocritical space where we said, via Schaff and Das, but you might drown on the way. And that was ethically untenable because of its hypocrisy. So I think the answer has to be that we work out what we can politically sustain as democracies in Europe and we discharge that responsibility in the most rational and humane way, which has to be predominantly in the safe haven countries with safe passage through resettlement to those that we're prepared to take in a strategically coherent way. Thank you both. Uh, I wish we could continue this for another hour at least, um, but we have to bring the event to a close. Thank you everyone for coming and for your questions, and thank you Paul and Alex for an amazing...